Hi folks, this is Grounded, stories of refugee resettlement in Vermont. I'm your host, Tilden Reamer-Leach. In this episode, you'll hear stories like... But I came here and all these kinds of people just yelling like, refugees are welcome here. And goosebumps, like, proud. I was proud to be part of this group. You know, I was proud that I brought my children to see and hear this. It was great. And that's, that's what makes this country different from all the other countries. That's, that's why you feel free and feel like you can do or accomplish whatever you want here. That's why I love it here. Um, and I hope that refugees that come after all the suffering and all the things in their life, that they can feel that and their mindset can be different. In the last episode, we talked about refugees' experiences of integration in Vermont, what it means to be a Vermonter, and how receptive Vermont residents are towards refugee resettlement in the state. Today is the final episode in the series. Sad, I know, but I promise it's going to be a good episode. We're going to hear from... University of Vermont students and the inspiring work they are doing in the area. Then we'll discuss potential improvements that could be made to the refugee resettlement system on a national and local level. And finally, we'll wrap up the show with advice for refugees going through the resettlement process and ways that people can get more involved. I wanted to start out today talking with some of my fellow UVM students who are doing great work out in the broader Burlington area. I started out by talking to Katya, who is also a geography student at UVM. Way back during her freshman year, she started volunteering with the UVM's DREAM program. This is a program that partners youth from low-income neighborhoods in the area with college students for peer-to-peer mentoring. And a majority of the kids involved in this program come from families of refugees. Um, So I just, I had always been someone who was like needed some sort of commitment outside of, not needed, I guess, but I would always pursue some sort of, I guess, community service type of activity um, throughout high school and like when I was younger. I guess it started when I was really little. I was in Girl Scouts. um, And so when I came to school, I knew that was something I wanted and kind of needed to, like, feel like I had a full life at college and kind of be outside of myself a little bit. Um, And so I just kind of offhand, I was walking somewhere, like, the first week of school with the friends I had had at that point, and they had mentioned Dream. And I, you know, the first week of college, you kind of don't think much about anything. You just go to a bunch of meetings and a bunch of clubs. Um, so I went to that first meeting, it was in the Davis Center, the club at UVM Riverside, which is one I'm part of, was like eight people at that point. Um, and so I went to that first meeting and they were like, okay, this is the plan for Friday. And then I went to the first Friday, um, met a bunch of the kids. And at that point I was kind of like, okay, like I'm not entirely sure, like if this is for me, if this is the commitment I want to be making, um, but you know, I just kept going back each Friday, went to the meetings. It was something that kind of gave me some sort of purpose in my first few very confusing months of college. Um, And then I 
was paired with my mentee, Famo, who was 13 at the time, in October of my first year at college. Um, and once we were paired, you know, that there was no going back. You know, we started to build a relationship, and I was in it for the long haul. So, Looking back at my college career, I really wish from the start as a freshman I had gotten more involved in meaningful organizations that do work outside of UVM. As a senior now, I feel like I'm just really starting to get involved in all of the things that are happening around Burlington. Katya, on the other hand, seemed to understand this need from the get-go. Spending at least three hours with that population of children every week of my college experience has absolutely, and I think anyone else in Dream would say this, has absolutely shaped my college experience because I think in college, as a college student, you're inherently, you kind of have to be inherently selfish. You're really working towards your personal goals. You're really figuring out who you are. um, And it's really easy to get wrapped up in yourself and get wrapped up in like a spiral of like wherever anything is taking you left and right. And it was something that I think grounded me so much and like, you know, brought me outside of my own problems or being so stressed, but like there was still a kid at the end of the day who was expecting me to show up and not just put on a happy face, but just be there for her. It wasn't about me. And I think that was such an important thing to happen at the particular moment of being in college for me, like for my growth. So from my particular mentee, I've learned so much. Just having to be a role model for someone while I'm trying to go through college and like do my best, I think challenged me, but also gave me so much. Oh man, I really wish I had gotten advice from someone like Katya before starting out at UVM. And I hope that this resonates with any other college students listening to the podcast. Katya, I think, went even further than a lot of students would and decided to be the co-chair of the DREAM program for a semester. So... Being in charge, I think, gave me a really cool experience because I was, like, the person at the front of the room, and so all the kids really knew my name, and I think that was, like, the most gratifying part right at first for me. Just, like, it's really hard work, and, you know, you're in college, and you're every single Friday afternoon is committed to these kids, so it can be really draining in certain ways, especially when, you know, they have no, like, there's no reason why these kids should be, like, thanking you. They're children, you know? They should expect fun and, like, joy in their life. They shouldn't have to, like appreciate it almost at like age five what you're doing for them so you know just I think the biggest thing for me that really was like wow this is really gratifying was when just simply all the kids started to know my name um and when I got a car up at school I think having that you know being the one to drive them to certain um activities really gave me alone time with some of the kids and I got to talk to them about school and I think everyone who does dream sorry I'm really rambling because there's just so many different experiences but everyone who does dream I think if you're really like hooked on it and you're really there for the right reasons and you really love it you just kind of know this moment where like there's like a little spark in a kid's eye or like they really like look to you for a question or just even like a kid who normally is talking about how he's like getting in fights at school or his teachers are mad at him and you can just see that like 
somehow the education system is sort of lapsing and not really doing this kid's service or something. But then one day, like, he's in the back of your car and you ask him, like, how was school today? And he starts telling you about hurricanes and, like, the water, you know, the ocean temperatures being a certain temperature for, you know, the wind to pick up. And he's, like, eight years old and he's so excited about something. And just, like, seeing that, like, pure joy out of a child is, like, the thing that... I don't even it sounds so corny and people don't believe you and you're like oh this this physically fills my heart with joy just to see this child I've seen grow up almost in the past few years just like be really excited about this random thing he learned at school or like I don't know it's just seeing the little acts of kindness between the kids um it just like really physically like we all talk about it it's just like this sensation you can't even explain it just feels so amazing to participate in their just like joy as children these moments that katya told me about sounded really special but katya didn't try to sugarcoat the challenges that a lot of these young students of color face living in vermont it's not even i hear these stories and i'll give you more detail i'll give you some examples but i hear these stories and i know on some level like some of it is i think actual just that this cycle of like the self-fulfilling prophecy where these kids are told they're bad and then they start to act bad and they're saying that like i've had like some of the kids i'm close with they'll just tell me like yeah today i told my teacher f you and like there's no situation in any any setting where it's appropriate to tell your teacher f you and i say that but at the same time like it's not coming from nowhere because i know these kids and they respect their parents they respect me so you know i think there's this issue of a self-fulfilling prophecy and i don't think it's completely on the teacher like i'm i don't even want to insinuate that the majority of these these situations i hear about with these teachers are because these people are blatantly racist or they have something against this child because of their background um but it doesn't really matter because on some level or another these like sort of underlying tones of exclusion and discrimination are being conveyed to this child and the child is picking up on it and even saying in you know in blatant language like they don't like me because i'm black Katya isn't trying to say that there aren't teachers in these schools looking out for kids of color, or that schools aren't trying to better incorporate youth into the education system. So, more specifically, I think it starts to really come out, or this is also like disclaimer, like this is just, you know, I can't make any sort of claim to the broader like education system in Burlington. I know a group of about 20 kids, right? So, maybe a little bit more, but you know, the kids who are really talking to me about it, it's 20 kids. So this is just an experience I've heard about, but I don't, I wouldn't venture to say it's just these kids, I really wouldn't. Katya held a youth retreat where students talked a lot about issues of race and how it affected them on a daily basis. Katya still remembers one high school aged girl who spoke up. And she just like spoke with such just dignity and passion. And she was just like, 
she really wanted to make the distinction distinction over and over in this conversation she was just like it doesn't matter if you are black and you're light-skinned and you understand this on a certain level like you don't understand what it's like to live in vermont and have dark dark skin like that just made she really expressed she was like i stand out so much more and people want to talk to me about my accent and they want to talk to me about where i'm from and it was just she was just a kid just trying to express like why can't you just ask me like what sport I play and you know like what I like to do after school um and it's such obvious stuff and it sounds like such like a classic like picture book about like acceptance but it really is it should be so basic and I think that these kids have so many like they're so on the ball you know they really see the problem and they're they have so much dignity and they're just like why can't you just see that like I'm really great at soccer like why are you asking me about my accent you know and so even just the teachers to have some sort of training and like understanding where like gen like actual curiosity might go into a microaggression and make this kid feel really discriminated against or just really ostracized. Katya mentions here that all of the schools in the area might benefit from more training for educators on multicultural awareness and microaggressions. This is one of many suggestions I heard from people I interviewed. I'll get into other suggestions that people have for improvements in the refugee resettlement system in a little bit. But first, I wanted to talk with Aiden, another UVM student in anthropology, who is a refugee and went through the local education system. Now, we have already heard some of Aiden's background story in the previous episode, where he talked about being a Somali Bantu youth, growing up in Kenyan refugee camp, and coming to the U.S. when he was six years old. His family was the first Somali Bantu family to come to the area. I have to say, talking to Aiden, I was seriously impressed. Aiden is so involved in Burlington, especially with the various refugee communities and multicultural youth in particular. I got to know him because he was a youth voice on a panel presentation held at ECHO, which talked about refugees' experiences. Aiden works as a youth mentor as part of Association of Africans Living in Vermont's youth program. He works for AmeriCorps. He even created a TV series on Channel 7, which you guys should totally check out. For multicultural youth. Um, he spoke at the UN. I could really keep going. <laughs> and the thing is, is he's so casual and lighthearted when he talks about all of these things that he's doing. I mean, he even told me, and I quote, I'm in the middle of writing my autobiography right now. <laughs> but um, I hope to like publish it in the near future and like see um uh, how it, it's gonna be called like um, a refugee boy to a community leader so sh- should be interesting <laughs> hopefully I'll do a book signing at UVM <laughs> it is. I want to yeah definitely <laughs> <laughs> talking about the conversation we had I really can't help but start smiling as a peer Aiden truly inspires me. I'll let Aiden talk a little bit more about what he's all about. Um, one of the questions that I've been running around in my head when it comes to like uh, youth work is like, how do we 
um, help youth with their interpersonal problems, you know? Because at the end of the day, uh, those struggles, like just uh, inner struggles are the ones that are like keeping them from doing like external activities. Mm -hmm. So being able just to like understand where they're coming from and like the factors that go along with like what, why they're not feeling themselves today. And like, because um, everybody's going through their own struggles and like we can't really, we can't fully understand the measure of like what struggle they're going to. But at the, at the least like um, would be able to like show support and like become the support system that, um, that they may need. I asked Aiden how he initially became so involved in multicultural youth work, and he said it actually had a lot to do with school programs that brought together kids who were also coming from refugee families. Yeah, um, I would say that it was primarily due to like the early organizations that I came across um, as a high school student. So just being able to like find a youth group that like um, uh, had youth that were in the same similarities as I was that I can relate to, like that made a huge difference because it was like in the early stages of um, Somali Bantu immigration in Vermont. So we didn't have much of our kind to like interact with. So. Um, the next best thing is like to interact with other refugees that like come from different countries. So they had like a youth group for that. It was called Diversity Rocks, and it was a uh, really, it was, it was like a uh, really influential group that like helped me to understand difference differences in Burlington. Because uh, I used to be a really shy student, but uh, I then like had educators that like actually cared about my uh, my learning and like took the time to um, like ask who I am as a person and like what I contribute to the class and like being able to bounce my learning off of that rather than rather than just passing by for a grade because th generally that's not how students learn best to their full potentials is through um, their own ideas and their own um, self-driven work that lets them to explore their own world. So when I had teachers like that, it like made me to develop more, um, understand more about myself and how I learned as a student. And then uh, I realized that being silent, being silent doesn't really take you far in life. So being able to like speak up about what you believe in is like very important. So like when I found the voice that I had, it like um, sparked my interest to help other youth to be able to like um, uh, understand that there is a bigger world out there than just playing sports every day and like playing video games. Like everybody, everybody has like their own unique perspective, worldview. So um, me being a shy student, uh, I saw that like it, it was beneficial for me and my learning to be able to like ask questions, speak up. And then from then on, I just started joining 
different organizations and then um, started becoming flourishing into like a community community youth leader so inspiring others is like one of the my my um, one of the most rewarding things uh, about uh, who I am as a person because I know that there are people in the community like looking up to me and like um, seeing that there is there is like possibility that other youth could be doing this type of youth work as well it's just about um, hard work and like dedication and um, being able to like understand where you come from and like where you're going we don't have time to go into all of the different programs and workshops Aiden is working on developing but I did want to mention the current work he is in the process of organizing with the Burlington Police Department. Which is like a huge, uh, like, controversial topic. Uh, it's always been. They want to become more community-oriented. Uh, I mean, it's like good intention that they want to become more community-oriented because not a lot of police departments in the nation, like, not even think about the community. So, like... Uh, it's, it's like a two-way street, so we're hoping to start like working with them. Like me and a, a, a couple other people from Spectrum, we're hoping to do like workshops for the Bullington Police Department, like on how to talk to youth, particularly black youth and like multicultural families as well, and like being able to like understand. Um, their perspective rather than just seeing it from the outside and trying to come in but um yeah we just like told them the littlest things just even cracking a smile when you're walking that makes a huge difference you know and like not not having your hands being intimidating like standing still like be be a human (laughs) yeah so like uh we just like wanted to like emphasize even with linguistic barriers as well like um, they use Google Translate, and like uh, it's not really as effective as like an actual translator. And like um, one of the things that we were gonna talk about is like how some officers use um, the youth for interpretation for the parents for multicultural families, and like that's not how it should go because like that's a youth and an interpretation. You need a degree to be able to do that. So there's going to be lots of like um, miscommunication across all sectors. And like um, the, like uh, like if I, were, if I were a parent, I'd be terrified too, because I don't know what, what the policeman is saying. And my son, he's speaking a language that I don't even understand yet. And like, um, and like, like they can't really do anything because it's, it's intimidating having a police officer in your house and like all you want to do is like let let him get out so you just try to do whatever you can and like and also even even with knocking as well like you know how most refugees particularly when they come from a new place is from like political reasons like and um, typically it's like through policing so they have like trauma um, and like when a police officer, when a Burlington police officer comes up 
to like a refugee's house and like um, demanding to speak to someone immediately, like that's just that's gonna create some striking fear, and like um, just for them to understand that it's a different world that they're coming from, so they they don't see things from a westernized perspective, they see it from their own cultures as well, so like. Uh, I know it's gonna be like tough to be able to change that mentality, but at least like uh, we could start and like be able to educate and like start educating and then hopefully implementing projects from what we learn. But uh, like, like again, it's like a two-way street because uh, the police, the Burnton Police Department. Um, they like we told them don't just come into the community just for like safety reasons so we also want you to come in there to be uh, community members there's just like so much that needs to be done in like Burlington like uh, in like so little time (laughs) Aiden's right no matter how you look at it there are just so many things that could be improved upon to make the refugee resettlement system stronger on so many different levels. Now this may seem kind of daunting, but the way I look at it, it just means that we need many people with all different kinds of expertise working together. Improvements to the refugee resettlement system range from large-scale national policies right down to the individual. The article titled You are not welcome here anymore, restoring support for refugee resettlement in the age of Trump. Written in 2017 by Todd Scribner states, First and foremost, it is important to advocate for generous refugee admissions programming that provides funding adequate to meet the needs involved in the resettlement process. This also includes maintaining suitable foreign aid funding any significant cuts to organizations like the United Nations High Commission for Refugees by the United States risks seriously disrupting the ability of UNHCR to screen potential refugees and to provide support and care for individuals who are stuck in refugee-like situations. In 2016, the United States contributed $1.5 billion of the $4 billion UNHCR budget. Cutting this contribution would leave a gaping hole that other big donors would struggle to fill. Todd also emphasizes that while advocacy efforts aimed at Congress are critical, it might actually be more effective to focus our efforts on engaging with people in local, small-town communities across the country. So I asked my advisor, Pablo Bose, who has been working with a refugee community in Burlington for the last 10 years, what his thoughts were for how we could improve the refugee resettlement system. I think there are a number of things that can help in the short term. In the long, longer term, it's really hard to know with the ways in which immigration is shaping out. So on the short, uh, shorter term, I would say um, we actually do a lot of things quite well here, but there are some things we could do better. The question of accreditation continues to be huge. Um, And that really, you know, so that's about whether or not we recognize the educational backgrounds, things that people have done before, work experience that they've had before, 
Are we sending people who've who's been a doctor in the past into working as a taxi driver? You know, these kinds of um, classic cases. Or are there ways that we can better um, better support people to get retrained, accredited, uh, moved into more appropriate kinds of careers? So that's one thing I definitely think that we can do a better job of. I also think that, um, you know, some of the things I've seen in some other places that have been very effective is um, something along the lines of leadership academies. So how do you focus on building on those strengths that exist within communities already and really help to support the leadership that that um, grows? Now, we have had some really good examples of that here. So, for example, the um, the Association of Africans Living in Vermont uh, while they are not a resettlement agency like VRRP, they provide a, a crucial function where they're really supporting refugees um, after that first year, uh, not only into the fifth year, but well beyond that. And they have they run all kinds of interesting programs, important programs. They're well uh, embedded within the broader local community. So I think supporting those kinds of initiatives, there's... Um, you know, the Vermont Hindu temple is a real effort by the Bhutanese to build those kinds of community linkages. But I think having these these ways of supporting um, some of the newcomers, and I think, you know, the Community Economic Development Office of the city of Burlington, um, the city of Winooski does some really interesting work around community outreach um, within, you know, limited resources for all of these different places the garden programs, um, the community uh, parks and rec, things like that. That is all about building capacity. And we start to see that in groups that have been here longer. You know, people from the who are resettled from the Bosnian community in the 90s, from the Vietnamese community in the um, in the 80s, you start to see more people serve on local boards, perhaps stand for elections, become involved in their uh, parent-teacher organizations and, and other civic organizations, charities, etc. Those kinds of things, I think, are really important. And that comes in part uh, from supporting integration, not assimilation. Um, the idea that people will retain the things that are important to them about their background and heritage while embracing their life in a new place. I think Bose mentions a key point at the end here which is that it's important to respect the capacity within refugee communities and not just see refugees as a group of people constantly in need of help, but rather as individuals who have their own agency. Everyone I spoke to had fantastic suggestions of how to make meaningful improvements for refugees in Burlington. A lot of the suggestions related to high housing prices in Burlington, improving the transportation system, and encouraging people to get to know people beyond the label of refugee. Mary O'Dale, a former employment counselor for the Vermont Refugee Resettlement Program, reinforced a lot of these suggestions. Well, I guess one thing that really is a hindrance for people is the lack of better infrastructure um, in public transportation where we live. So I'm constantly wishing that there were ways we could work on that. Um, you know, figuring out more efficient and successful 
uh, ride shares or um, different programs that could help with transportation just because it's such a big challenge and yet it feels like something that's so fixable. Um, housing is such a fortune where we live and really in a lot of cities these days um, and paying for an apartment while supporting a family and making minimum wage or close to that is such a challenge and as a result sometimes the apartments we find for our clients are a little off the beaten path because those are the only ones that are available when they arrive um, and and affordable when they arrive and um, that makes public transportation even more challenging than usual so I guess I'm always wishing that we had a better system in place for that um, and that more people were just talking about it. Um, Pablo Bose also mentions this in his research, Building Sustainable Communities, Immigrants, Acculturation, and Mobility in Vermont. This may include considering more carefully where refugees are placed, both in communities and specific neighborhoods, vis-a-vis specific destinations, working with transit authorities to provide affordable fares, developing car and rideshare programs that specifically address refugee populations, dealing, for example, with a lack of insurance paperwork, supporting translation and interpretation services for driver education and licensing, and working with employers to create van pools and flexibility in job start and end times. I think there's also just this separation between the general public, per se, and new Americans. I guess I'm again, as a 20-something who was a UVM student and has been a part of the Burlington Winooski community for quite some time, um, I'm constantly amazed by how many people just have no idea for who their neighbors are um, or what the definition of a refugee is. Um, I, I guess something that has been really shocking to me over and over um, just being in this field is how articles, even in our community that's so accepting of refugees um, talk about the quote-unquote refugee community um, neglecting to recognize that new Americans are not living in a separate community they're just as much a part of our community as we are Um, that's always just shocking to me how there's this separation and how people associate the word refugee with um, a certain type of person Um, I'm always reminding people as I'm educating them gently that um, people need to realize that they too could be refugees. I mean, we have no idea what's in store. Anyone could be a refugee depending on, you know, the way our politics and our country goes. Um, So I've spent a lot of time kind of telling people about that. And then just as, as an employment counselor, I spend a lot of time networking and talking to uh, different employers. Um, And in that role, I've spent a lot of time reminding people that refugees aren't one thing. You know, Mm -hmm. refugees aren't all hard workers or all anything. Refugees are people. They're individuals just like you and me. Um, We're all so unique, and I guess I resent this idea that there's just this one blanket expectation or assumption about who someone is just because they've had to flee a war. So I guess I'm always just hopeful that people will look for opportunities to educate themselves and beyond just like turning to a textbook or um, asking a professor, just talking to their neighbors. I mean, we're so lucky to live in this community that's diverse and, you know, becoming more diverse over time and we have people that bring so much with them here 
so many stories, so much love, and I just, I just am hopeful that we can continue to be more welcoming and be more brave and more open to getting to know each other. I asked people I interviewed if they had any advice for refugees who are recently resettling here and are just getting started adjusting to life in Vermont. Theo, the assistant director and program manager of the Association of Africans Living in Vermont, had this advice for recently resettled refugees. Enjoy the ride. (laughs) Um, It's not easy to, you know, just move everything, everything that you know, uh, everything you have believed in. You come into a different country, different culture, and you have to figure it out. It's not easy, but I can tell you this one thing. Um, Refugee families are the most resilient people I've ever met. Very resilient, uh, hardworking, and... um, appreciative of you know the the promised uh safer places they get resettled into so you know you its challenges will be there uh, the biggest one it's always language it doesn't matter whether you come in here as a refugee or not if you do not know the language that most people communicate with it can be very challenging but with a lot of patience to learn how things work and um, really putting yourself out there and asking questions if you need the help. You'll realize that, in fact, there are more people willing to help than you think. I asked Amir the same question, and he had several suggestions for newly resettled refugees to mull over. What are the needs? What's important in your life? I mean, if you're a man of faith, you have children, you want to be somewhere where your mosque, church, synagogue, whatever, temple is. If you're not, what, what is important to you in, in this life? You know, what do you want your children, if you're a family man, to learn or keep from your culture? The essential things are, of course, roof and food and work here. I wondered how Amir's views had changed over the past year or so. When Donald Trump was uh, elected president, there there were uh, uh, peaceful protests here. Um, uh, People uh, wanted to make sure that refugees are welcomed here. Um, And they organized. And these people were Americans, like... They were not refugees. That's what I love about this country. We went there uh, to the protests, and um, I was there with my wife and my kids, and I told them, you know, maybe I'm that kind of a person, maybe that's the experience of the refugee, or I don't know what it is. But I told them, when I tell you to go, you take the kids and go. Don't turn around, just go. You know where the car is, just go. Okay, nothing's gonna have a lot of. Listen to me, please. You never know. 
I don't know what's going to happen. Who are these people? I, are there any groups that are not thinking the same? You know, you never know. And my job as a parent, as a human being, is to think about that. But we got there. 90% of the people were like locals, Americans, that just wanted other people to have a fair share or freedom here to live. And that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, if, if I thought of myself in 1990, would I get out and say, you know, I'm going to protest because people from Gabon or wherever came, can't stay here? I don't think so. Like, I'm good, right? That's what humans usually think. Like, oh, I'm, I'm okay, you know. But I came here and <laughs> all these kinds of people just yelling like, refugees are welcome here. And goosebumps, like, proud. I was proud to be part of this group. You know, I was proud that I brought my children to see and hear this. It was great. And that's, that's what makes this country different from all the other countries. That's, that's why you feel free and feel like you can do or accomplish whatever you want here. That's why I love it here. Um, and I hope that refugees that come after all the suffering and all the things in their life, that they can feel that and their mindset can be different. message he wanted to share with the younger generation never to think that you're too small to do anything because like uh, it's again it's a big world out there if one thing doesn't work another thing truly will and like uh, just being able to uh, know that <coughs> like they're they're not alone like um, we're here for you for whatever you need like life can be tough so like having support systems is like and um, a great way to be able to keep that connection going if there's anything i have learned from the process of putting this podcast together it's that there really are amazing people out there doing incredible work And it really doesn't take much effort to get to know them, or really to become one of those inspiring people yourself. I know a lot of people might come away thinking, I have to do more! And I like the way that Alicia Laramie, the director of the New Farms for New Americans program, puts it. I guess I would say on an individual level, figure out what you're passionate about. It could be refugees, it might not be, but whatever it is, throw yourself into that. And so that um, if it happens to be that you're really passionate about learning about how to better help refugees and immigrants, then 
do do whatever you can to be involved and whether that's through a school or through a church or um or through the the resettlement agency i mean i think it's good that not everyone is interested in the same things so that we can all be working towards the community's betterment in whatever passions that we are interested in so um, I just think there's a lot of good people who their first, you know, priority might be mental health and then through mental health, they end up helping this population or they're a doctor, a pediatrician, and then they end up helping this population. All of those resources are really needed and those people will emerge. So I think it's just, you know, if your passion, for example, is doing this kind of thing, I think even that is you might not be working directly with with the refugee and immigrant population, but you're helping to do something on some larger level. And that's, yeah, I don't really have a magic formula because I think there's so many um, challenges and that because there's so many challenges, we need all kinds of people to meet those challenges regardless of what it is. taking the time to listen to this podcast. Please let me know if you have any follow-up questions or information to add. Please feel free to comment on the website for this podcast. And many thanks to all of the people who lent their voices and experience to this production. forget to like share or comment on this episode i always love to hear your feedback this podcast was created and produced by your host tilden Reamerleach. the intro music for the show was created and produced by edward james the production of this show received funding from the University of Vermont's College of Arts and Sciences Apple Award and the Four Mini Grant. Other music featured in this episode includes Suppose It Is by Puddington Bear, Chill Mode by Audio Binger, Back on the Road Again by Scott Holmes, and Dr. Dan Will See You Now by Matt Oakley.
Mm-hmm.